Hey guys, happy weekend. It's going to be a busy one. I want to start with a quick apology. We did have some technical issues recording this podcast. It seems to have been on my end. There was a hard time picking up my voice at times. It really fades down to almost nothing. I've cleaned it up as uh, best as I can, but apologies if this is not quite up to the usual standard. We talk about a lot of stuff today. We talk about what's going wrong with the liberals, what might be going right with the conservatives. We talk about how we mean well, but we keep screwing up in fairly predictable ways. We talk about why I've been limping all over Toronto like a zombie and a lot more. So tune in and enjoy. This is the latest episode of the Lines Experimental Podcast. This week is big for politics nerds, but kind of like nothing's happened yet. So everything we're about to say is kind of a setup piece. We're recording this on Friday as the conservative convention is getting underway. You and I thought about going, it didn't, the scheduling didn't really work, but I think probably next time we'll do better. Like we'll just plan this out better. Um, yeah, we, we, we probably should have agreed to go and like had our tickets booked a couple of weeks ago, but then we didn't because we didn't have an editorial calendar. And then like the first week of it's school, kind of, it's a full, like, it's the first week yeah. of school, man. So it's that kind of stuck up on us and we just didn't get our shit together. So that that's on us. Two, two element for me, two elementary school students. I know the same for you, but also my wife's a teacher. Mm-hmm. It takes a lot to get me out of this house the first week of school. So anyway, um, for future note, conservatives, could you please do this like two, like a week later, into, like a week yeah, later, exactly. even, even into like early October would be really appreciated. Well, the liberals are doing it next week and that would have been way better. So, yeah. but who wants to go to that, that like, well, that's going to be the most, to to it's going to be so depressing. Yeah, but fascinating. All right. Well, you'd have to go because my husband's traveling. So, so let me actually. Oh, uh, well, I mean, I'll break the fourth wall here. Just uh, you know this. I, I have injured myself, and you can't tell right now. I am as soon as this podcast is done, I'm off back to the uh, medical clinic at the hospital to get X-rays. Uh, I've been hobbling around for about a week with what I thought was like a sore foot, but I finally saw a doctor yesterday, and he, uh, she looked at me. And she's like, "This is broken. Like you, you have broken your foot." And I'm like, oh, that's why it hurts to walk on. Um, I'm a very typical male. The, the, the long and the short of this is that I will soon have amusing and on point um, anecdotes about the Canadian healthcare system to share. But in the meantime, I ain't going to no convention. Fair enough. And like, it's all content, baby. It's all content. Content. Woo. Um, so, I, you know, I actually want to want to mention something to you before we talk about conservative convention. Let's talk just for a minute about the liberals, because like I said, nothing at the conservative conventions really happened yet. Like uh, Mm -hmm. Polyev is going to come out with a speech, but uh, the liberals about an hour before we recorded this came out with a new attack ad talking about uh, Pierre Polyev, right wing American style rhetoric, blah, blah, blah. I didn't watch it yet. I just saw the tweet. I'll I'll actually watch it later. I'm going to make a prediction. I just think this is played out. I think we've seen already with abortion and guns. Yeah, I, I don't even like. I don't even watch liberal ads anymore and get upset about them. Let's put it that way. Like it's just like I don't care. Before it was all you did. Yeah, I watched them and I was like, Fuck "You Trudeau, all right, like whatever." No, that's that's not true. Um, I certainly watch uh, political ads as a as a as a detached observer of said yeah. ads, right? Like I don't really care, but I just find them boring now. I, they, there's something about them that's just not connecting. And I think you're right. I think it's just played out. All this, the fear mongering is played out. You've Mitt Romney. You've you've blown the wad on Mitt Romney. I was saying to Sharon O'Toole. 
I'm saying to a colleague at the CBC today, just talking about the, the, the convention coming up, they wanted to know if I'd be there. I'm like, no, I am immobilized. Um, I was just saying in 2015, when the Liberals won, Justin Trudeau was a better communicator than all the others. He was a better communicator than Stephen Harper. He's better communicator than Thomas Mulcair. And the Liberals had mastered the digital tools of circa 2015, and they were dominant in that realm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think Pierre Polyev is a better communicator than Justin Trudeau right now. And I'm not, you know, I'm not, don't, I don't want people to blow up at me and overreact what I'm saying. I'm not talking about the message. I'm talking about just how he does the messaging. And Justin Trudeau, in my opinion, has always been a communicator way before he's anything else. He's a communications guy. If but he's the second his, best his... communicator, he's fucked. Well, uh, I don't think that he's, it, it was a strength in communication or is a strength in empathy. I mean, those two things aren't totally unrelated. Part of being an effective communicator beings means being able to feel out a room, right? So I think, to be blunt, I think some of his empathy has been profoundly stunted by eight years in office, as it would be. And it's also been limited by the sort of bunker that he's surrounded himself in. So, I mean, you're taking somebody who has an incredible superpower of empathy and you've completely neutered it over time. And that affects the communication skills. They're just not really there anymore. I get the impression of someone who's putting a really good face on a very broken and bitter spirit have you uh have you read the althea raj column that came out kind of to set up the uh conservative mm. convention yet no i haven't it's worth reading and the, the summary is and althea if you're listening to this i'm not saying this to knock you here i'm going to summarize the column in one sentence angry liberals venting and it mm. and what's interesting is that there's there's nothing unusual about angry insidery types venting about the leadership and the direction blah 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 i've written a bunch of those pieces myself nothing mm-hmm. nothing new under the sun which is why althea shouldn't feel picked on here but i i don't know maybe i'm projecting but reading it this morning it was the first time it read to me as something different it read to me for the first time as a defeat justification narrative where it feels like and we all talk about the rats fleeing the um, the uh, the sinking ship and stuff. For the first time reading something like this, it read to me as liberals going, we're going to lose and I'd better start establishing myself as one of the voices of reason who had tried yeah. to warn. Up until like, you know, there was people were to like, be fair, you're also doing that on your Twitter account. I tried to warn you liberals. Like oh, I have tried to now. warn you. Yes, I know, no. but now you're but you're doing victory laps around it now. It's funny. Um, I wouldn't. I don't think it's a victory lap. What I'm trying to do, and it's funny, a tweet to forty six thousand people in this case is really aimed at about five, maybe six <laughs> people who are useful sources to me. I want them to realize that I'm right, because until they do, they won't talk to me, <laughs> or or oh. all, all they'll do is argue with me i need right. them to get to the point where they start realizing that i'm not trying to like jedi mind trick them i'm trying to tell them what's happening to them so thus far by the way i would rate my success as zero yes who would have thought that you tweeting to try to communicate subtweet a bunch of people about how right you are would be an ineffective tactic of persuasion it's just one part of a multi-pronged effort. Multi-pronged effort. Look, I'm talking. I'm, I'm talking to my remaining liberal sources who have dwindled over the years. As you're probably not going to be shocked. One of the things I find interesting, 
I was talking to a buddy of mine who is a liberal, uh, edging towards retirement now and no longer directly involved with this government, but still active. And we were talking about anger and this notion that I think that some liberals have seized on that the reason they're getting murdered in the polls right now is because people are angry. And I'm like, well, what are they angry about? It's like, well, the, uh, social media and the right wing ecosystem and uh, disinformation. I'm like, okay. Made them, made them angry. Yep. I'm like, okay, mm-hmm. I'm going to agree with you. That's a thing. Mm-hmm. Th- there are columnists in this country who who whip that stuff up. There are powerful Twitter accounts and algorithms and everything that, that do torque that stuff. Some of it is untrue. But I said, do you have an answer to someone who is not on Twitter and doesn't have Facebook and can't afford a home. And he didn't. So So here's here's another observation that I'll make, and this dovetails into what I've been actually working on this week, which is my book. And when we talk about, you know, it's about moral panics, essentially, and one moral panic in particular. But one of the things that when you say that this is a moral panic, people get very defensive about that because they think what you're saying is this is fake. This is not real. You're inventing this issue. That's not what a moral panic is. A moral panic is an overblown response to a real threat to Poss- society. Or even always real or possibly real? Possibly credibly real. You need you have if you're gonna build a moral panic, you need to be able to demonstrate evidence of a harm that's happening in your community. And when we're talking about the satanic panic, people look back on that being like, oh, that was completely made up. No, it was misinterpreted from real events. There were serial killers who were very active in the 70s and 80s who were blaming and saying, I did this for Satan. You know, there was a a massive increase of um, occultism and Satanism in the popular culture, in the zeitgeist. You were seeing this in, in music, for example. So there were practicing Satanists, very small, very marginal groups of practicing Satanists. You know, this was the stuff that was happening. And and from there, people cottoned onto a moral panic and drew wildly implausible conclusions. Absolutely. But it was rooted in a real thing. It was, you know, you you couldn't do, you couldn't get a whole, an entire moral panic up and running and say, well, well, okay, but where's the crime? People were able to point to the crime. (laughs) They were able to point to examples of this. So this is something that I think people don't understand about moral panics. They don't operate on fictions. They operate on actual threats and actual problems that then are are then subsequently misinterpreted or overinflated and polarizing. This is, a, I think, an analogous to what we're talking about here. Yeah, there's a there's a right wing eco- ecosystem that's whipping up rage over issues, but that doesn't mean the issues they're whipping up rage about don't aren't real or don't exist or or are fictitious. They're not. They're not fictitious. That's the point. They wouldn't be able to whip up rage against them if they were completely and wholly invented. So you need to understand that. And to some extent, you need to spend time in these ecosystems understanding not just the method of how they're getting people worked up, but what they're actually upset about and be able to ground that in reality. You need trusted outside voices who can gut check you when you're wrong. Mm -hmm. You need a leadership group on the inside who is able to take the feedback and apply it to strategy. Mm -hmm. And you need a leader who's prepared to change course. 
And one of the really interesting things that's been happening over the last, I'll call it month, kind of when the polls really began to suddenly change, is that I'm seeing some smart people say, either as liberals or even just observers, saying, I'm so confusing. Why aren't the liberals on the offensive? It's so strange. After the cabinet retreat, why wasn't there a housing plan? You know, all of these things can be explained if we start to suspect that the top level of the liberal command, so to speak, is punch drunk and they're just, they're just frozen. And I don't, I I just, it's been interesting to me to see people who who seem to even just discount that as possibility. And this might sound like that I'm criticizing Trudeau or Telford or the PMO. And I don't really mean it in that sense, although it kind of does, Effectively, it does net out to a criticism, but you and I have seen politicians, political teams, political parties, when they're just through the looking glass and they, they're they so far gone, you can't bring them back. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when, when, the, when the Harper conservatives were losing in 2015, I don't think they understood why they were losing. I think they understood that they were losing, but I don't think they ever understood why. When the Ontario Liberals were losing in 2018, and I have very vivid memories of that campaign, they did know they were losing, but they didn't really know why. Mm-hmm. And I think the Liberals now understand on an intellectual level, like they can read polls. <laughs> they're, they're, I'm sure they have internal numbers too, but nothing that they have done so far signals to me that they get why. And that is why you and I've talked about this already. That's why I think it's going to get nasty. Mm-hmm. And that's why they're going to fall back on the only tactics they actually have. What if it doesn't so, work though? Which is just as an interesting well, hypothetical. Then, then, then Pierre is our overwhelming majority leader of the next yeah. conservative. Okay. But yes, but I meant more basically like what happens, let's say hypothetically over the next month or two, the liberals roll out all the big guns on attacks and negativity and the polls don't move. Do they just, do that for another 24 months we're gonna find out i don't know but hey we're talking we're talking about the liberals and we're supposed to be talking about the cpc i'm curious what their plan b would be i'll leave it at that Uh, all right cpc convention cpc convention it's a big one obviously yeah it's it's the first one with pierre it's the last one before the next election and it's a convention that's happening right as the momentum is starting to ride high for the cpc so attention is going to be high Everyone there is going to be looking for gaps. All the media, especially the left-wing media, is going to be there and looking for, you know, embarrassing culture war um, resolution from Vagerville, Saskatchewan. You know what I mean? They're all going to be making issues of that, which, by the way, that personally drives me nuts at conventions, no matter what, whether or not you're Everybody does that bullshit. Everybody does that. It's really obnoxious. A resolution from the floor, from, from like some rule whatever is not necessarily reflected in party like it's it no stop it um even if it gets adopted and debated on the floor it doesn't necessarily mean that the leader is going to run on that like it's it doesn't it's 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 an open process by which grassroots members can have a conversation it's not fair to say because this resolution got passed or that resolution got proposed that this you know therefore all of conservatism is you know, wanting to murder the gays. Like, you know what I mean? Like that, 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 which is what, just where this always goes. And it's just a very stupid misunderstanding of how the convention process works. And it's very frustrating. 
it's not just the liberal, the conservatives that this happens to, although this does seem to happen to conservatives more than others. Um, but it, it's a really annoying, easy, stupid way of covering conventions. Let's just leave it at that. Um, that being said, there are some resolutions. We're going to see what happens. The, the, the trans puberty blocker convention is going to be something that's issued. One of the things that I think people are really going to be looking for as well is what the what gets proposed on the climate side. Mm. Um, one of the big critici criticisms, especially from people who are moderate, mid tier Tory kind of, kind of people are like, you know, you do really do need a credible climate policy. And right now we're not seeing it. You don't want the carbon tax. Okay, there's an economic justification for that. W what do you have to bring to the table? There has to going to have to be some 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 progressive stuff. I do think that you are going to see some interesting stuff around um, responding to online harms bills, mm -hmm. C18, C11. What's the Tories' take on, for lack of a better term, big tech media pre media freedom and freedom of speech? Like these are going to be pressing issues that the um, conservatives really. I, mean, I think this is their this is going to be sort of issue for them anyway. So, because there's a lot of really genuine consternation about what the liberals are doing on the on the internet media regulation side, and very rightly. So that's going to be there. And then the question is just also who's going to be doing giving the the what's going to be happening at the keynote speeches? What are going to be the what's the overall vibe? What's the what are what is what are the themes? I mean, one of the guys I believe what's his what's his name? Lord, what's his face? He was a Brexiteer. Is going to be one oh, of the, the uh, keynote yeah. speakers. Yeah, the British dude. You know. What's that? What's that, guys? There was a very, very shallow piece. Who I won't name names. There was a shallow piece noting that it was incongruous for Pierre to be leading with a keynote from a lord, yeah. presumably from a writer who didn't understand that there was a difference between the hereditary peerage and peerage by appointment. What do you do? But anyway, what that guy is actually going to say is going to be more interesting to me. He could be a total loon. We'll see. And also, it's going to be interesting to me to see how to see how Pierre himself moderates his tone and language for a national audience. You know what he, the the kind of conversations he was having here in Western Canada. I think are going to be very different to the conversations he's going to be having in Central Canada. You know, this is a little bit of a we're seeing a bit of a reverse thing where politicians used to say one thing in French and another thing in English. Yeah. Except in this case, everybody speaks English. So. <laughs> one thing west of Winnipeg and one yeah, there's one thing one thing west of Winnipeg, another thing east of Winnipeg. So these are all kind of things that I'm keeping an eye on for the convention. I I, I don't want to presume too much because I mean you'll see how the convention goes. On another kind of related topic, there is sorry, I just say we do have the advantage that our written dispatch will come after some of yeah. So yeah. like the podcast is speculative. By the time we write the dispatch, we'll actually have some of these answers. Before before we move on, can I make can I make a one minute reply? I want to throw I just a counterpoint. If you must have an opinion, a possible <laughs> counterpoint. Just consider this. What if, in fact, none of it is interesting because none of it matters at all? What if all the conservatives need to do this weekend and the next two years is avoid catastrophic self sabotage? If the liberals' death spiral, Polyev will have to work very hard to lose. And I do not discount the possibility because I think Polyev has a self-destructive streak. And I think, as we were talking about last week, the uh, conservatives are base captured to an extent that mm -hmm. is, I mean, the liberals are too, but I think there, I, I can easily sketch out a hypothetical way that Pierre Polyev loses the next election. Not hard to do, but I can also just as easily tell you how Pierre Polyev wins the next election in a walk. And he barely has to lift a finger to do it. So 
yes, you're entirely possible that nothing here matters. And in the end, all of us will die and our planet will be absorbed by you know, the expanding our, sun. You know, our atoms will disperse back into the universe. Entropy is a thing. But this is the only thing we have to talk about this week. Not true. The rest of my things. list is pretty thin. Yeah, it's not the... Look, we're, we're wordsmiths. We can find interesting things to we'll say. We'll always be able to figure out things to say. That's what we Granted. do. That's what we do. So on that note, one thing that has been annoying me because I've been seeing This is uh, carbon taxes? Weeks, yeah. Yeah. There has been a real effort by liberals and liberal proxies to try and say, look at the carbon tax, aren't the conservatives bad? Sorry. Look at the wildfires, aren't the conservatives bad because they don't want a carbon tax? Look at the wildfires. The conservatives are bad. They're arsonists. They don't want a carbon tax. Look at the wildfires. Look at how bad those anti-carbon tax things are. Okay. Trying to attach the carbon tax to the wildfires is every bit as stupid and disingenuous as trying to say that climate change doesn't exist every time there's a snowstorm. Okay. I'm generally speaking pro-carbon tax because I think that's a market-focused solution. Also, originally, this was a conservative pro- yeah. proposition. It was a way to try and disincentivize the the, the overuse of carbon-emitting Intensive fuels. fuels. Yeah, Intensive let the market fuels. decide how to and, best to and, do that. Yes. Like, you, like, basically, the argument for a carbon tax was always, we don't need some new centralized government that's rationing out our carbon. You just need to tax it. Yeah. So this was always a conservative proposal, and it was always smart. Now, that being said... Nobody who proposed it for Canada ought to have had any illusions about it yeah. because we we submit less or emit less than 2% of global carbon emissions. You could literally wipe all of Canada off the map with a nuclear bomb and it would make no goddamn difference to global emissions. But that doesn't mean that that gives us a right to be a free rider. You know, yeah. we, we we have to participate in show leadership and do our part. It's a moral so, like, obligation. It's a, it's a moral obligation. But let's not kid ourselves. The carbon tax is not preventing wildfires. Well, 30 times the carbon, not, I mean, don't get, no, even if, even if the entire world adopted a carbon tax tomorrow, we're still getting wildfires. We're not going to undo the damage we've done on these wildfires. It's, this yep. is, this is now locked in. All right. And that makes it, even if all of Canada were to adopt 15 times the current carbon tax and put ourselves back into like a 1910s style subsistence economy, we're still going to be dealing with goddamn wildfires. Stop threatening me with a good time. Like, um, you know what I mean? Like this is, this yeah, is no, not, this is, this is, this is an incredibly disingenuous connection. And like, it's not illegitimate for the conservatives to say a taxation based policy doesn't make sense when we're in the midst of a cost of living crisis. They can make that argument and come up with better alternatives if they want. I think that that's probably incorrect, but hey, it's, we're, we're in the realm of legitimate policy goals and calling them arsonists for that, I think is actually really, well, I mean, it's politics, so I'm not going to talk about when we fair or not, but it's really dumb. Yeah. And it's also one of these examples of liberals sort of sticking to a particular attack point when it loses its salience. I think it has. Oh, that loops me right back to the beginning. The stuff is played out. This stuff I, is played out. I, also, I, if you're going to give most people a choice between, you know, smoky August and being able to heat the heat their houses in winter, I'm heating my house. So, like, don't frame this as an economic versus environmental trade-off or standoff because, like, most people are not going to 
choose to go back to the mud hut, the unheated mud hut in the middle of the Canadian prairie. Like that's, that's bad framing. You're going to lose on that. The um, I've, I've written about this. I don't know if I've written about it the line actually, because I just became so irritated with the issue years ago. I stopped paying attention to it, but I've written about it in the post and in McLean's our carbon debates are just grotesquely stupid. Yes. Like they've really brought out the stupid in, in both parties and on balance, I'm in line with the liberal policy on this one. I, I, I agree with you. That's legitimate to talk about timing and, and rates and all this stuff, but yeah, no, I mean, I think this ties into a bigger climate issue. Do you remember like last year when I was struggling to write a column and I just gave up on it eventually, mm-hmm. I think there's been a failure in our climate debate to have an honest discussion about prevention versus mitigation. Yeah. And I think one of the problems, I think, look, again, I'm more on the liberal side than the conservative on this issue. Cause I think that, as you said, the liberals just took the, the once upon a time conservative policy and then the conservatives have never gotten their mind around that. Like the liberals yeah. stole one of their good policies idea. And instead of the liberals going, well, okay. Instead of the conservatives going, well, I guess we agree with them on this issue. They had to keep kind of going out and try to find stupid ways of differentiating themselves. Well, and also that the, the, the carbon tax they're using is a wedge. This is a wedge issue. It's it's, they're yeah. going to attach this to a to the cost of living increase, even though the actual impact of the carbon tax on the cost of living yeah. is, is not, it's not huge. It doesn't matter. They're going to say, Every little bit counts, and they're going to use it as a wedge on the cost of living stuff. Do you remember, That's like, Aaron O'Toole, like, when, a- remember they had that sort of, like, that climate rebate plan where, like, your mm-hmm. carbon tax points would go into, like, a thing that you could then spend. It wasn't actually a bad plan. It was just too complicated. It, no, you know what it was? It was a bad plan because the only reason the plan existed was because the conservatives felt they needed to do something and did, felt they could not do what the liberals were doing. So like it was artificially complicated. Yeah, because yeah. like rather than going, we happen to agree with the incumbent party on this. It had to become how can we have a climate plan that's different from theirs since they stole the one that probably should have been ours. And I think th- the conservatives have still. I also think to a certain extent the liberals have outflanked them on childcare as well. So I think eventually the conservatives are going to probably propose some ridiculous, cumbersome, here is how we will do childcare better plan. Everyone, okay, well, you lose on an issue, but if you want it as a wedge, you can't let it go. Yeah, I think that that's how I would describe the carbon tax. Speaking of childcare, I don't know if you're aware of this, but there is a major E. coli break, outbreak happening in Calgary. I've seen the headlines. I've been pe- paying attention to it. I started really paying attention to it last night when the number of sick kids jumped from like 100, from 50 to like 128. Some of them are quite sick, I think. Some of them are very, very sick. And and uh, E. coli, especially for children under five, can absolutely be fatal. And um, for some of these kids will be life-altering. Like they're it's, on dialysis. It's, yeah. it's real bad shit. So- What's interesting about this is one, there's a very good chance considering we're still early in the outbreak. We don't know how big this is going to be. Mm-hmm. We might be looking at something akin to the 1993 Jack in the Box E. coli outbreak. In other words, the fact that I even remember that tells you how big a deal it was. That was a very big deal. And also yeah. there were four children who died in that. No children have died in Calgary so far, thank God. But the other thing too, is what makes this almost worse is the fact that it was all daycares and it was all daycares using a centralized kitchen. Yep. Um, 
you know, I want to put a pin in that because we still don't have enough information about those daycares. We don't have enough information about what happened at that kitchen. Was it just a terrible mistake? Were there, were there corners getting cut? How sick are some of these kids going to be? We're still about a week out from having more of that cru crucial information, but we're in the verge of this becoming potentially a, an international story, not just a national story, because it's actually so significant. Thank, thank God my own kids are not in those daycares. Um, so I'm yeah, just going to no, put a pin saw, in that. because I saw that, you tweet or put on Facebook that your kids were okay. My kids are fine. Yeah. But I mean, there's, if this turns into as big a story as it might, I mean, we're right on that fence right now, that might reopen a conversation around childcare in this country that will have political implications. That's so a, I hadn't thought about that, but yeah, good. Well, you know. Why were why were these daycares relying on a centralized kitchen? Why was that centralized ki kitchen? I mean, I don't know this, but maybe it was cutting corners. I mean, e I mean, equally outbreak of this level that that doesn't happen by accident. Well, that doesn't happen unless there's pretty significant issues. So, what led to that? Like, we're going to need some actual real investigative reporting into this, and it's going to be a a longer term issue than I think people are appreciating, especially if some children wind up dead, um, which of course is every parent's nightmare. So uh, anyway, I, I don't know if that's where gonna, this is going to go, but I there's a non-zero chance in a week or two we're going to be coming back to this particular yep. story. So I'm putting a pin in that for later. So we only have one big item left on the list before I got to go back to the hospital to get irradiated. Um, but I just want to mention as a, as a quick update, obviously on the Ontario front, the housing minister resigned this week, uh, mm -hmm. resigned nine o'clock in the morning on Labor Day Monday, um, which technically means I won because I had told a friend that I thought he would not last the weekend. So I think I, it counts. I think I, you're I think, in. I think I'm safe on that one. Uh, the, the only thing I would just mention here is that uh, the new housing minister, Paul Calandra, has now given two press conferences. They've been debacles. And it's really interesting because at the start of this thing, the Ford government had a really coherent and obvious messaging plan. Uh, yeah, you know, the the... We didn't get we didn't get the process right, but we got to build houses. We got to build houses. You need a house. He needs a house. We all need houses. Housing, housing, housing. Homes, homes, homes. Housing, housing, housing. What which, were we talking I mean, about again? Yeah, which which uh, you know ethics and morals of the whole situation aside, was a good just strategy. Pure Machiavellian strategy was yeah, a good strategy. They have now lost a chief of staff. They've lost a cabinet minister. They've had to shuffle the cabinet. It's been referred to the RCMP. The attorney general is now reviewing this as well to see if the lobbying act was either circumvented or is not sufficient. As we mentioned in the last dispatch, weirdly colorful characters are now emerging. Whatever the comms plan was didn't work. It was interesting. And again, purely as a message of strategic comms, what we saw this week twice was a cabinet minister going out there to absorb uh, metaphorical bullets without the benefit of a coherent plan yet. Okay, so why I, do you send a minister out before you have a plan? Well, you basically have, they, have these guys not can they not shut up? No, no, they have sent him out to do two back to back on consecutive day press conferences where he has only made it worse because they don't know what their new position is yet. Right. And this is the classic Doug Ford. And the funny thing is, like the they, line, they, you can just stick on stick to that line and shut up. And like, or, let the investigations play out. Or you punt a week and the minister's office goes, hey, look, we're going to be transparent with Ontarians. The minister needs a couple of days to get up to speed on the file. We're going to have a press conference early next week. It's the easiest thing in the world to buy time on this one, except that Doug Ford never does that. 
What Doug Ford does every time is he digs in on a line of defense. He cannot hold. He holds it too long. And instead of doing an orderly retreat from it, he holds, he holds, he holds, he holds, he breaks. So that's all I wanted to say about that. I'll write up a little update blurb. Um, um, my only last observation, about... yeah, there was something that kind of started to make the rounds on Twitter on the social social uh, culture war front. It, mm-hmm. I believe it was based on a, a post column that noted a really horrific incident of um, a father raping a daughter. And because the father was black, he got an ex- just an extraordinarily lenient sentence in, sentence in the Canadian system that is already incredibly lenient on these crimes. It was, it was, I think, the other wild card. It's a really nasty story. They were both also developmentally challenged in some way. Yeah. There, there's yeah. a lot of layers on this one. But yes, there's I know. a lot of layers on this one. So anyway, a lot of the culture warriors really, especially the American ones, snapped in on this and said, well, you know, race-based sentencing is here. This is horrific. All of a sudden, you know, these people are no longer equal under law. Um, there's something I would point out, and that is race-based sentencing is not new in Canada. Uh, this goes back to the value report. It's established at this point. Um, uh, factors about upbringing and 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 uh, extenuating circumstances around hard conditions, particularly for First Nations people, has been uh, now, now enshrined in law at this point. So this is not new in Canada. Uh, that doesn't mean that it's not, or it's not, that's not a justification of it. it. It's a problematic thing. But one thing that I I. One thing that I kind of started thinking when I was reading through this report and this response to it was it's really interesting to me how the race and background of an offender is always used to argue for more leniency for the offender. But the race and background of the victim is never considered as a mitigating factor to argue for greater punishment for the offender. And the social justice factors only ever go in one direction. Yeah. And I thought that was interesting because there's a real obvious practical problem with that. And that is the vast majority of crimes of this nature, incest, obviously, domestic abuse, assault, most murder, murders. most murders are not actually things that happen between racial groups most of them happen within racial groups. And for some extent, that, that's a, there's a real obvious answer for that. It's because- Close most, contact. Close contact. Most crime is, is close contact. Particularly yeah. when you're talking about something like incest, it kind of built into the, the definitional well, terms. Stranger here. danger is a thing, but it's incredibly it's, rare. It's incredibly rare. Yeah. So if you are creating a justice system that has enshrined leniency for people of- certain backgrounds and ethnicities into the system yeah then what you are also doing is you're creating a system whereby the victims of certain crimes are also going to be almost incredibly always. Dis- almost always disadvantaged or they're all or they're going to find that their their access to justice is always their ability to punish their perpet- perpetrators and have watch their abusers be served sentences and 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 you know, go through that legal process is going to be mitigated. You can't have one without the other. This is the problem. You can't, you can't buy more social equity. You can't try and like trade off so more social justice and one facets, one half of the justice system without inherently causing race-based inequities to occur on the other side of the equation as well. And in 20 or 30 years, where somebody's going to do a study and they're going to say, 
when white women got got murdered, the perpetrators served 20 years to life. And when women of color got murdered, their perpetrators served, you know, six years minus time served. And they're going to use that as an ev- more evidence of white supremacy in the system. Clearly, the criminal justice system is favoring, you know, the lives of white people over non-white people, when in fact, what it will be in this case will be an effect to try and mitigate the impacts of white supremacy by being more lenient on offenders who are who are not white. I don't and, remember. And this is just, to me, it was just, it was almost comic. It was almost darkly comic because I was just like, oh, okay, so we're just perpetuating white supremacy no matter what you do. Like, you know what I mean? Like the ride never stops here, guys. <laughs> like that's that's what it is. So anyway, I just, I kind of wanted to address the, the issue from that perspective because I thought it was a really interesting problem. You know, first of all, you're right. I agree with every word you just said, especially that it's not new because I was a pretty rookie cub op-ed section editor at the National Post. A go- uh, I don't even want to think about how many years ago this was. And we were getting op-eds about uh, not just the the philosophy or the ethics of the of the Gladue ruling, but some of the, uh, which uh, Gladue, so if people don't know, um, if you are an indigenous offender in this country, the historical circumstances of indigenous people are a mandatory thing for a judge to consider when establishing sentencing. Um, and not to add more, it's basically to go, you are a product of, of genocide and inter- intergenerational trauma and all that stuff. So I object which is, to that. Which is, is fine in principle. And then you realize that, okay, then you have a first nations offender go off and kill 11 people on his reserve. Well, see, that's exactly it. Because first you of know? all, I, I don't even like the principle of it. I, I, I don't believe in, in, in race-based justice, but what I really think the problem is here, you mentioned the reserve. You're almost literally right. So it's one thing to look at this and to go in in a, in a hypothetical case where a black person murders a black person and uh, receives a lesser sentence or an indigenous person murders an indigenous person. I'm just talking in bulk hypotheticals here. You could look at it and say, well, that victim had a discount applied to the, the value of their life or and then and the the toll of their suffering. But it's actually almost worse than that, because one of the things that happens, particularly in smaller communities is that the offender serves either no sentence or an abbreviated sentence. And is put back into the community. In that community. That's yeah. exactly so it. That community becomes higher risk for the people within it, who, by the way, are not white. <laughs> it becomes much higher risk because of the leniency and of, of, of the system that keeps on churning these people back into their into their communities. And there so have th- been people in these communities. I mean, literal like postal code communities, but also like ethnic or tribal or religious communities who have said to judges, you are putting the man who raped me back in my town of 200 people. Yeah. Like the person who murdered my family in five years will be living three doors down from me again. Yeah. And the judge is like, eh, it's a report. And you know, it's funny because, but again, it just, to me, it's, it's like, it's a justice system that completely puts the onus of empathy and sympathy on the wrong places. Right. Yeah. These issues are real. Like systemic issues are real. Intergenerational trauma is real, but we're not breaking the cycle. We're just pushing it onto a different person. Yeah. We're perpetuating this, the, the systemic issues and the, and and the, and the the cycle of trauma and the generational trauma by refusing to consider the systemic issues faced by the victims. (laughs) That's the problem, well. but we mean so well. We mean so well. But you know what? Here's the problem: we've always meant well. 
That's the problem. Yeah. And I remember looking at crime stats years ago. Uh, these were American crime stats, and I don't remember them verbatim. But contrary to, I mentioned before, stranger danger, it's real, right? And contrary to what a lot of people think that violence in the United States is between the races, it's not. If you are white and a victim of murder in the United States, and again, I'm rounding these numbers off because I don't remember them specifically. And if you're a black person who gets killed in the United States, there's about a 90% chance that it's a black person who killed you. And it's the same for all the races. And it's nothing to do with racial ideology or anything like that or racial identity. It's because you're more likely to be killed by your close associates, your well, friends, your family, your neighbors. This also gets really interesting when you talk about serial killers too, because most serial killers will stop within race. Yes. Not all. There are exceptions to this. There have been exceptions to this. And some serial killers are just killers of opportunity. Yep. But generally speaking, serial killers have mommy issues and they're looking for versions of their moms. Like, you know what I mean? What their moms look like. So serial killers tend to kill within their race. Um, so this is a weird thing as well. I mean, this also gets into missing and murdered and indigenous women. I mean, it's been, been long sort of the, the, the sort of national mythology around missing mur murdered women was that all of these women were going missing because there was there were Pictons. Robert Pictons were out there um, uh, uh, murdering them. Yeah, Robert Picton was murdering some. And no, that's that, I think that's now credible and well established. But the vast majority of women who have gone missing or been murdered that we know the answers to were victims of men in their own communities. Yep. So. It, I don't know. I this to me just it's just the, the terrible dark irony of the fact that we're perpetuating all these systemic things now under the name under the guise of you know trying to combat the very systemic issues that we're trying to combat. Like it's just it's because we don't learn any lessons. We never learn any lessons. We never learn. We, we never, never learn. learn. We never learn. And it makes and it makes us and it makes the judges, it makes those judges who are you know overwhelmingly of a certain class and demographic feel so much better. You know what? So I much better about themselves. Sometimes I think the judges, if you could get them off the record, I think you'd be shocked how clearly they see these issues, but the politicians tie their hands. I don't yeah, think maybe. I don't think the the average judge sitting on the bench has anything to gain by like perverting justice in the name of more justice, but a politician on a campaign trail does. Maybe. I don't know. I'm not until I see a pretty in-depth study of judges and what their positions on this actually are, I will, re I will remain unconvinced of that because, I mean, ultimately, they're the ones passing the sentences, right? Well, yeah, so. that's true. Uh, on that happy note, I'm off to go get irradiated. Um, go do it. All right. We'll work out who's writing what. Yeah. Thanks, Jen. Okay. Bye. Bye. Well, that's it, everybody. Hope you have a great rest of your weekend. By the time we get the written dispatch out, we'll have some specific things to say about the conservative convention. But for now, take good care and we'll talk to you soon.